Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Welcome to another episode of the OHL podcast, presented, of course, by Matt Smith Goaltending. Train where elite goaltenders are created. Find them online at mattsmithgoaltending.com. We are speaking today with one of the 50 greatest Ottawa 67s of all time. We know so because the organization told us so. Jim Fox joins the podcast. It's great to have you here with us, and thanks very much for making the time. My pleasure. Anytime. Thank you very much for having me. How does that sound to you? One of the 50 greatest Ottawa 67s of all time. I mean, that's a proud Ontario Hockey League franchise there, Jim. Yeah, um, and, and it's it's certainly where the my athletic career, the best years of my life, uh, spent three years in Ottawa. Great city, great team, great fans. Just everything about that city uh, brings back great memories. And, of course, the teams that we had, some real good teams there. So, yeah, that's... Uh, that's a, that's a proud moment for me, certainly. I want to talk a little bit, just for a moment, about the city or town that you were in prior to Ottawa. Because, look, I'm Ontario born and raised. I've been covering this league for a couple of decades. I've never heard of Coniston, Coniston, Ontario? Coniston, yeah. Coniston? It's just outside of Sudbury. Okay. Eight miles outside of Sudbury. I know you're in kilometers now, but I'm still in miles down here. So, <laughs> uh, And it's, it was about 2,500 people. It had a uh, smelter to refine nickel. Of course, with Sudbury, that was the main industry. So basically everyone worked in for Inco, International Nickel Company. And uh, it was a hard life. I mean, all of our fathers, you know, moms, dad, everyone was involved in that. And it, it was really hard, uh, small, small town. Uh, I've been in every house in the, in the town, you know, when you think about now, I, I'm living in the suburb of Los Angeles, we're Redondo Beach. And, uh, you know, at times I don't even know my neighbors, uh, the people next door. But growing up in a small town like Coniston, 2,500 people, you got to know everyone. Uh, if you were doing something bad, your parents would take you aside. It doesn't, who, didn't matter who. And they would let you know and let you have it. And your parents were okay with that because everyone trusted each other to help raise uh, all the kids. Uh, really interesting sporting community um i mean the, the arena in coniston is the toe blake memorial arena uh, so toe blake actually grew up in coniston uh, my wife's home that she grew up in toe blake lived in it before she did so or her family did so uh just a lot of a lot of sports history uh, a very tight-knit community and uh you know go back every summer i've gone back every summer and we'll go back every summer. That's amazing. And when you mentioned Susie, your wife, I got to bring this part up because I see, and anybody watching on our YouTube channel will see that beautiful heart with the word love written in it behind you. Susie and you were elementary school sweethearts, Jim. That is a remarkable story in and of itself. We could do a whole hour just talking about that. <laughs> in Coniston, at the end of town, they built two schools in the same at the same time, one was French and one was English. 
exact same school, carbon copy of each other, right across the street from each other. So my wife, Susie, went to the French school and I went to the English school and we met, I think I was in fifth grade, maybe, maybe sixth grade, she was in fifth grade and that's when we met. And uh, man, that's 41 years of marriage later, uh, we're still together. So very, very happy. Well, and you think about that though, 41 years of marriage is one thing, but as a teenager, you're in Ottawa, then you get drafted by, of all teams, the Los Angeles Kings. I mean, I'm just thinking of the geography the two of you have covered as a couple. That's pretty remarkable as well. It was. Uh, again, I, well, I played in Tier 2 Junior at the time uh, when I was 15 in North Bay. So that's about a 70-mile drive from Coniston. So we could go back and forth a little bit, but Susie would come visit me then when I was 15, she was 14. And... Uh, we would make the ride to watch the games, North Bay Trappers, and it, it was called the Provincial Tier Two Provincial Junior A back then. I'm not exactly sure what they call it now, um, but it was the the league right underneath the OHA or the OHL now. And um, so I spent a couple of years there, and then Ottawa, and she would come visit me in Ottawa. Uh, and you know, my first year in Los Angeles, uh, we were not married, but she came at Christmas. I'll never forget. Christmas, we're down on the beach, right out, I live right on the beach in Manhattan Beach here, and uh, playing beach volleyball on Christmas Day, and you know that was her first real chance to see uh, L.A. And, and the L.A. area, the beach area, just phenomenal place to live. And uh, the next summer, we got married, 1981. Incredible, absolutely love it. Okay, so let's let's talk about that junior hockey career, and I wonder how close it was, Jim, to being a professional baseball career. I know you liked baseball growing up. How did you make the decision that hockey was where you wanted to go? Well, that, that was done very early. Uh, it was, you know, I, I remember in Pee Wee, you know, we, we had a little team that was like D, I think, because of the population. Uh, we went to a silver stick tournament in the Port Huron, Michigan. We ended up winning that for a little town. And that's, you know, 12 years old. That's when I kind of started to think about it, really. I mean, um, had a great group of kids, still friends with everyone to this day. Um, and that's when you started thinking about it. Again, you're, you're playing, but you know, I'm just, I'm a little bit ahead of most of the other kids. You know, I think I had 210 goals one year, um, you know, like 70 games. We played a lot of games because we were playing tournaments all the time and traveling around the Sudbury area. Um, and that, that was interesting. It was just a, a great, again, great way to live up. Uh, live and grow up and hockey and just the environment of all the small towns around Sudbury playing against each other. We didn't play Sudbury. Sudbury had their own league, um, but we were just kind of figuring things out there. And, you know, you just kind of, I guess you kind of realize and you look around and you go, I'm doing pretty good here. And um, baseball was, my dad was a real good baseball player. He actually came to Sudbury, the Sudbury area to Coniston because uh, Inco gave baseball players jobs and they had a real strong senior league back in the fifties. My dad was part of that and real good teams that carried on and, you know, just played that way. All my brothers played. Um, and that was something that we, you know, as soon as the summer started, it was baseball season. So, but hockey was, you know, Bobby Orr at that time, you know, I was 10, 11, 12 years old. He was winning Stanley cups for the Boston Bruins and, Certainly, I followed the Bruins and Bobby Orr, and that, that was it for me. 
obviously you mentioned those 210 goals. Offense was never a problem for Jim Fox at any level that you played at, quite frankly. I wonder how much, though, Brian Kilray in Ottawa worked on you to be responsible defensively. He was, he was, he was the type of coach that really – he wanted his players to make it to the NHL. I know it's a business, the Ottawa 67s, and you have to win games too. Uh, just a, a personal story. Like, I fell in between – I wasn't drafted my first year of eligibility. It was just that when they dropped the age from 20 to 18. So that first year I wasn't drafted. I was kind of in between and it was only six rounds, I believe. But in the interim period, NHL teams were signing free agents, the guys that weren't drafted. And the Colorado Rock um, at the time uh, were uh, coached by Don Cherry, very close friend with Brian Kilray. He, he wanted me, instead of coming back and playing my, my last year junior, and he knew by losing me, it would have hurt the, the six. He, he wanted me to go and play. He thought I could play already at 19 years old. He thought I could play in the NHL. And he thought with Don Cherry, a close friend, he would take care of me, you know, make sure all that type of stuff. So he wanted, and I, I didn't. I said, no, I'm going to stay in. But that's how Brian was. He, he was always trying to make sure his players were promoted to the NHL somehow find them a job in pro hockey somewhere and that's the way he approached things so for i mean his teams were always full offense 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 scores outscore the other team we'd always get beat by peterborough in, in, the, in the playoffs because they were the shut down defensive team but uh you know that's other than my dad and my family my brothers and sister you know brian kilray had the biggest influence on me i mean he he when he selected me to be captain my last year, that was the first time, you know, you, when you're going up, you're always playing two or three years up uh, if, you're, if you're one of the better hockey players. So when I got to my last year, he made me captain, and I'll, I'll never forget that. I thought that was – because I, I remember going to practice, and, you know, you go blue line to blue line. And uh, instead of going blue line to blue line, I would always start one stride before the blue line and go all the way one stride after the blue line. Just to try, you know, he selected me captain, and that was something, uh, you know, that made me very proud to to try to to try to lead a team. You know, this is really interesting to hear from you because you're not going to have a podcast called the OHL Podcast without having Brian Kilray a part of it really early on, and so you're talking to Killer, and he'll just go. I mean, I think the interview just ended. We went on, and he's a great talker, great stories, and we talk about some of those legendary Ottawa 67s, right? The Denny Potfins and the Bobby Smiths and, you know, it, Peter Lees. And he said, don't forget about Jimmy Fox. Everybody overlooks Jimmy Fox. Now, it was hard to overlook you in the year that you won Player of the Year with your 166 points, but we'll get to that in a moment. But he was, he, he made it clear that Jimmy Fox should not be overlooked as one of the most offensively gifted players that he ever had the chance to coach. Well, it was, it was very interesting. My last year, uh, I ended up getting a knee injury, so I played like 51 games. I think it was 66 games in the season. Anyway, I ended up with 65 goals and 100 and whatever, 66, I think it was, yeah, 65 goals, 101 assists, I think. Yep, that's, that's what it was. <laughs> and I had the least amount of goals on my line because Sean Simpson, the centerman, and Yvonne Jolie both had 66. So that's how much we dominated offensively. I mean, we were just 
score at will. And it, and I mentioned, you know, Brian made me captain. I'll, I mean, the thing I take pride in the most is my final year. I, I missed games because of injury, but I was able to get at least one point in every preseason, regular season, and postseason game. So at least one. And that was something that, you know, again, just the group around me. I mean, you know, I'm going to miss guys, right? But, you know, my line, Sean Simpson, Yvonne Jolie. Doug Crossman back on the blue line. I mean, you know, one of the smoothest players you'll ever play. You know, Bill Kitchen, big defenseman, passed away now. Rest in peace, Bill. Uh, just, just a, a solid, big, take care of us. Uh, I mean, like I said, I, I can go through the whole list, but those were my, you know, Rory, Rory Cava, big, tough, tough, tough. You know, you know, you needed the toughness to take care of us guys. My first year, I marvel. At Bobby Smith. I mean, Rhett's finished second in scoring that year. Now, Bobby had him, I think, by four years. Four years old. But Bobby Smith had 212 points or something his last year. I, I could not believe how good of a player he was. I mean, he, and you know, he's big. He's like 6'4, six, 6'5, six, stick handle in a phone booth. He could do anything. And um, that was probably the best team I played on my first year. Uh, our, our last year, we, we won the regular season championship. But, didn't make it in the playoffs. We kind of lost to Peterborough, but um, that first year with Bobby Smith, man, what a player he was. You mentioned the Peterborough Peets, Jim, and I, I can't help but notice their role in your junior career too, because two of your three years, you make the playoffs and two of those three, both those times, once it's in the first round, the next time it's in the second, but it was those darn Peets. Now they had a bunch of good teams then too. So maybe, you know, in Ottawa's case, it was just, good team at the wrong time because those were strong Pete's teams. But looking back, that must have been the team that essentially had your number. Yeah, it was because my first year with Bobby Smith, Steve Payne and Tim Higgins were the big line. We went into Peterborough one night. And so they, you know, they, I think Gary Green was the coach then. He, you know, they had Roger Nielsen and Mike Keenan later, you know, they had the defensive coaches. And I, I remember we went in there to play and they sent out their checking line to shadow. I'm talking about shadow, Bobby, Tim, and Steve. Like they stood beside them and went everywhere. So what Killer, first whistle, Killer calls everyone over to the bench. He says to Smitty's line, you get out there again. I want you to just go, just go and stand at the far blue line. So they did that. The three Peterborough Peets stood right beside them. And both teams' defensemen played two on two, the whole shift. That's that was the rivalry. Killer didn't like that they, you know. Killer liked to open things up. He wanted again his players to be able to show their skill, and you know Peterborough was the better unit, the better team, and that's what they did. But he, they, they, they played the entire first period, because they didn't, they didn't have to skate. They just stood at the, at the line. And again, the defenseman went back and played two on two the rest of the rest of the time. We're talking obviously 40 years ago in the Ontario Hockey League, uh, a much different era of hockey and you still being in the game. You know full well what I'm talking about with how much different it is now compared to then. And you referenced some of the guys you had, the late Bill Kitchen, tough as they come, Cavett, tough as they come. You as a skilled player, Jim. Were you targeted? I mean, how did how did the opposition treat you back then? Yeah, I remember in the first my 
final year, first round of the playoffs, we played Oshawa. I think we ended up beating him in seven games. Uh, Barry Tobogadon, tough, tough kid. He shadowed me the whole series. When we were on the power play, they would still shadow me. They would have a guy kind of stand there. That was the toughest series I'd ever played. I mean, man, you had to, you just had to work for every single inch. And finally, you know, you just hope that there'll be a breakdown somewhere and you'd get that one, two, three chances. And uh, that's where you did. But no, that's, yeah, when you're, when you're on the top line like I was, it was every time, like I said, regular season, it was not unusual for, for teams on, on the penalty kill. We had the power play. They would assign a man just for me um, because we were on the power play. We were really good. I remember with Cross as the quarterback and, uh, you know, me and Sean and Yvonne up front, we were tough to handle. So, uh, yeah, that was, I remember when I hurt my knee, it was in Kingston, our biggest rival. And I, you know, I tried to jump around the guy and he hit me and I just I kind of tweaked my knee a little bit. I had the uh, medial collateral ligament was torn a little bit, not too bad, but I missed, I don't know, 15 games or so. And I remember when I was being kind of carried off the ice and the fans were, cheering that I was hurt and that was kind of like oh geez that's that's how serious it was but uh again you, you'd never I, I would never change a thing I mean, never just the way it went it's again Ottawa was just a great no I wasn't drafted by Ottawa I was drafted my 15 year old year 16 year old year number one overall in the Ontario draft by the Windsor Spitfires and I went to training camp with Windsor and I just didn't feel comfortable. I just, I was homesick. I, I couldn't say it at the time, right? I was, I felt that would be embarrassing to everyone if I said I'm homesick. So I went, I, I went home and I told everyone I was going to go to college, college route. Uh, and since I hadn't played a game yet for Windsor, I was still eligible, right? Because if you, once you play one game, you're considered a professional for college rules and you're playing major A. Uh, but so that was a very stressful time for me. I was just, it was kind of, I, I was just, I was homesick. I just didn't like Windsor. I, I couldn't, I couldn't get it. The place I was staying at, they put me, I just was very uncomfortable. So during that next season, I went back to Ottawa, excuse me, North Bay to play another year in Provincial A and um, Tiller traded for me. Uh, ben Wilson was the guy who went the other way, basically, with a couple of other players, but that was the, the big name. So, um, and then if you can believe this, okay, so I'm public enemy number one in Windsor, right? Because I didn't go. I'm 16. I, you know, I, I said I'm going the college route, which I, I did. I mean, I had offers from everywhere to go, but again, I went back. I went to Ottawa to visit during the summer and Bobby Smith picked me up and took me out and visited the whole town. And, and I just fell in love with Ottawa. Anyway, the following season, guess what? First game in Windsor. Referees cannot make it to the game on time. They're late somewhere. Something's happening. So what they decide to do is have showdown shooter against the goaltender, right? One shooter from each team, three, three shooters from each team, kind of like they do now, but I think we all took like five shots. My memory, my, well, so Killer picks me as one of the players to shoot. 
but we're in Windsor. Everyone ha absolutely hates me, and I don't blame them. I mean, I was first overall pick, they, they, and they, I didn't go there. Man, oh, man. So I ended up winning the shootout, and it was like, oh, I, I'll, you talk about almost have to be police escorted out of a building. That was it. First game ever in Windsor, and that was who I was just a basket case, but we had a real, real good team that year with Bobby Smith. Real good team. Have they forgiven you in Windsor to this day, Jim? Can you, you know go to the city, enjoy a good pizza? Yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I don't think a lot of people remember that. I mean, I do now. Now I can say it. Back then, again, I felt I couldn't say it. I felt, you know, it would be a sign of weakness to, to say, oh, I was homesick. You know, nowadays, I think everyone's learning that you can talk about your nerves and talk about all of that type of stuff. Um, but back then, it was just kind of, you know, you just didn't do that. Well, I didn't. Uh, yeah, we went back every year and we played and it was, it was tough, but I really don't think there's a, an issue now. You mentioned earlier about Don Cherry and wanting to sign you as a free agent undrafted to the Colorado Rockies. You decided not to. Obviously, in hindsight, I think that works out pretty darn well for you. But at the time, as a 19-year-old kid, Jim, that must have been a tough decision to make. There's your, there's your dream, isn't it? The pro deal. With, with Bobby Smith's team, we, we and I think we won the regular season points championship. And we, we had a great team. Didn't win. Next year, I, you know, had a decent year. We, we didn't win again. But then I just looked forward to that. And I mean, I remember Tiller come came to me. He said, and I was, I was not as committed as I should have been. In my second year, I think I got up to about 205 pounds. I was, you know, 5'8", and I was overweight, but I was still, you know, I was scoring still, getting that, you know, get points. We had a good team, decent team. And Killer came to me, he said, you know what, the scouts don't think you're committed. They, they don't think you're, you know, you're good enough, but they don't think you want it bad enough. So I remember I went, I lost 30 pounds in 30 days. I went on, I had two bacon and tomato sandwiches a day for 30 days. I started running and jogging. And so I lost 30, now not the way to do it. But I said, I'm gonna show them. So I lost 30 pounds in 30 days. So I was basically, when I showed up at camp, I was 170 and that, that made a huge difference. Then I was like fast. I was fast before, but now I was really fast. And uh, so that's, you know, those things you're thinking about, and I, I just, I just wanted to do it with, you know, Ottawa and the guys that I started with. We played three years together. Uh, that was something that we needed to finish. And uh, I'll be honest with you, it wasn't a hard decision. It really wasn't. I, I wanted to play in Ottawa my last year. What does that scoring championship mean to you all these years later? 
You know, it's in all honesty, it's 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 tough because I, I went to the NHL, had a decent career, but I didn't have the same success at the NHL level that I did in the junior level. So that's I kind of that's that's the way I believe. I didn't live up to expectations, um, and that's unfortunate because again, in that last year, that's going. I mean, we that line we dominated. We absolutely dominated. So, you know, again, I played, I missed 15 games, I played 51, had 166 points. We, we were unstoppable. And I know I, when I missed those 15 games, I had such a big lead in the scoring that I ended up winning it anyway. But Yvonne was probably right there. Yvonne Jolly was right close to me. Sean Simpson, they were right there as far as points. And, uh, Believe me, to play on that line and to have, and I know it was, uh, I know it was, then we didn't, we didn't do well as a team as far as the playoffs went. But um, to play on that line, that was, again, I, I mentioned in my athletic career, it were the best years of my life. And that last year with Yvonne and Sean, that was, you know, we were, we were unstoppable. And of course we got stopped in the playoffs, uh, but you talk about having fun and just going into every game, knowing that, you know, it's going to be hard and they're going to be on top of you, but we were just, we were that much better. 10th overall first rounder to the national hockey league. There's something else they never take away from you, Jim. That's got to still feel special to this day. What was it like when it happened? No, it wasn't the big hoopla as it is today. And that's fine. I remember I was home in Coniston and I just received a phone call. I wasn't in Montreal. I believe the draft was there. And I think they did basically the draft by like phone. I'm not sure if everyone, I guess, yeah, the teams did go, the teams had representatives in Montreal, but, um, but I didn't go to the draft. Um, so I just got a phone call at home and it was LA. And I, you know, I really hadn't given a lot of thought about where or how or didn't. It was just, let's make it to the NHL. And that was good enough for me, for sure. That was a, just to know that you, you know, and then you go with the camp and you know, I, I, I was a healthy scratch my first year 10 or 12 times. I mean, you know, it wasn't like I jumped right in. After that, it was, you know, I was a regular, but, um, you know, to think about LA and, you know, the triple crown line, Marcel Dion, Dave Taylor, Charlie Simmer, they were on fire at the time. Uh, we had my first year in, in LA, we had, we were, I think we were the fourth best team in, in the regular season. We had the best road record in the league for a team that traveled back then. It was 21 teams we played 80 games. So we played two home, two away against every team. So we're traveling all commercial back then. Uh, so very difficult, but, um, you know, then it, it was a, interesting to me is I, I assume players go through it going back for my second year. I just felt so much better than my first year. I just felt so much more comfortable. I felt like I belonged, felt like I was going to make the team, felt like I was going to you know, start to do better. And I did, but that was, a uh, first year was a lot of learning experience. And then after that, it was, it was, uh, and you know, I'm still here now, uh, 40 plus years later. And that's something that, that's what I take a lot of pride in. I, I know my dad, when, when he went to work for Inco, 
I mean, he had a tough job. He was a mechanic. He just fixed stuff in the refinery, and that's all. You know, he hard, hard blue collar uh, work. But he, he, he. I always felt that he was proud to work for Inco. He was proud to go to work every day, and he worked for Inco his whole life. And right now, I'm looks like I'm going to be working for the Kings. So that that long, and that's that's something I take a lot of pride in, just to be here that long. I can completely understand that. I think it's really cool. You talked about that first year, not in the lineup every night, but the team had a lot of success because the Triple Crown line was as good as it was. It was a a pretty precipitous drop off in year number two, Jim, points wise for the LA Kings. But if I'm if I've got my chronological order in place here, it was that second year that the miracle on Manchester happened. So the Kings have a, a lesser regular season. I think you were one of the second to last or last place in terms of playoff yeah. entrance that year. I, I'm not sure. The, all I know is this. It is still, while well, it is the, it was the largest separation in points ever in the history of the NHL for an underdog to win the series. There you go. Yeah. 50, I don't know how many more points than we did. I mean, they were way ahead. And, and they were way ahead in that game. Yeah, and we against... were under, yeah we were under five hundred I think during the regular season, yeah and then yeah it was, we're in a series we win the first game there in Edmonton ten eight <laughs> how was that for a playoff it was a five game series back then they tie it up and we come back for game three in Los Angeles the first home game and we're down five nothing after two periods we were, so we're just thinking like you know people ask you what are you thinking in the locker room and, between the second and the third, you know, we're just, it's the same old cliche, you know, let's go win a period, let's go win a period, let's, well, we ended up tying it up there, 11 scores with, in overtime, we scored uh, with under five seconds left to tie it up to go to overtime, and then Daryl scores so that, and then we ended up winning the series in five games against Edmonton too, so, which ends up, again, being the biggest underdog, one game, and in a series. So Daryl Evans, though, doesn't get the chance to score that goal in overtime if a young Jimmy Fox doesn't strip the puck from, of all people, Wayne Gretzky in the final seconds of that game. You're down 5-4 still at this point. What's going through? And and also, if I understand correctly, you were the guy that came off the bench when the goalie left the net. Correct. So how did this all happen? It, it, you know, when you're so the pucks, we had a little pressure going on in the offensive zone. Goalie just gets pulled. I just so I just end up running, skating into you know, a million miles an hour. Just I'm the extra guy. Where's the puck? Where's the puck? Where's the puck? We had a little scramble around the net. It goes to the side, and Gretz gets it. And he looks up, and he's just trying. And I just, you know what? And people ask me to, you know, now while it was Gretzky, you know what? I to tell you that I knew it was Wayne at the time, maybe, but I just kind of knew how much time in the clock, you know, I, you don't have much time here. So I just ended up, I just kind of spun my body around and took the puck. And I remember getting back to Mark Hardy, he shoots, and then the rebound, Steve Bozek scores. I think it was three seconds left, something like that. So yeah, that was, uh, that was, you know, and that, you know, again, now you're, it was interesting because you know, now we get to go to an intermission between third and overtime, and now we're like, we believe we can win. I mean, we truly, and we ended up doing it with Daryl's goal, but 
I remember before game five, we're in a hotel. Uh, to get to game five, this is interesting. Because of the schedule and travel and all that, games four and game five were played uh, in consecutive days. We shared the plane with the Edmonton Oilers to fly from LA to Edmonton because there's, we couldn't, you know, chartering back then wasn't as big as it is now. And teams now we have our own plane and basically. So they shared. So I, I think it was, I don't know if Edmonton went on first, I guess. Yeah. And they all sat at the back and then we went on and sat up the front. I think they actually had the referees kind of, you know, on the same plane going for game five. So, and I, uh, I joke now that, you know, people that when we boarded the plane, Edmonton was in front. I joke because I think they were in the back of it. And rest in peace, Dave Semenko. I said, yeah, I went by Semenko and I popped him a couple just, you know, on the way to my seat. And, you know, just joking like that. But, uh, yeah, we had to fly in the same plane back. And then I remember we had a meeting that afternoon, early afternoon, after like a pregame meal, we had a meeting. And Mike Murphy was on the team at the time. And he was, uh, he was just... We, we, we talked about, you know, a little strategy. Back then, there wasn't really any video sessions, but we talked a little bit of strategy. I'll never forget Mike's, he just said at the end of, he, he gave a little talk and he said, he said, if we do what we just talked about, we're going to win relatively easy tonight. And we went up winning, I think it was 7-4. I think it was 7-2 at one point, maybe 7-3. They ended up getting a goal late, but we beat them 7-4, I think, in the game five. And that was... Uh, that was, you know, again, you know, that's, and we have to joke now that we just made them mad enough that they won five of the next seven Stanley Cups or something like that, because that's, I mean, the 84, 85, 85, 86, Edmonton Oilers, maybe the best team ever. Yeah, that's, uh, and, and they were just like, they were on their way up they when you did this to them, right? They were a terrific hockey club, no they, question about it. They, they, I remember again. They they played that weird style. So you'd you'd line up on a faceoff, and they'd win the faceoff. And normally back then, what as a forward, what you would do is you'd you'd spread out. You go to your wings. They would skate back into their own zone, and build up speed, European style. You know, watching the Russians and just so they and then they come at you a million miles an hour. I remember like. Played with Bernie Nichols mostly as he was my sentiment for most of my time here. And we didn't get the Gretzky unit. We got Messier and Anderson. That's who he played against the whole darn series. And I swear, I, would, I was begging to play against Gretzky and Curry because I could catch them. I couldn't catch Anderson and Messier. They were just so fast. And they, that was, I mean, you know, if you go back and watch now, it was fun hockey because they... They were so skilled, but, you know, we tried to keep up with them. And they, like I say, 10-8 first game. So, uh, but we, they learned their lesson. And after that, again, they just won a lot of Stanley Cups. You know, in that third game, the miracle on Manchester, when you come back from 5 nothing down after two periods, I just recently had Doug Smith on the podcast. You assisted on the game tying goal, and I'm pretty sure he took the face off in overtime to assist on the game winner. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but right hand draw, Daryl was on his off wing, left hand shot on the right side. So Smitty drew it back, and Daryl just took one step and fired it. And it went right over the shoulder of Grant Spear. I mean, like a bullet. But yeah, Smitty took the draw. I can't help but think, Jim, 
of the parallels in your career with Wayne Gretzky? I mean, obviously, we're talking about an upset, a huge upset, the biggest still comeback in Stanley Cup playoff history in the National Hockey League of your Kings over Gretzky's Oilers. By the time Gretzky joins the Kings and they make that 1993 run to the Stanley Cup final, you're on the broadcast crew. Did it like, was that weird for you at all? Uh, no, I mean, I mean, I played against Wayne Jr. So when he was with the Sioux, we, we actually played them in, uh, after my first year, first round, we played Sioux in, but they had eight point series back then, right? Right, yes. So we actually had to play a game eight in Sioux because they beat us in game seven, but it was like point, and there was a tie somewhere in there. Eighth game, you played to the finish, but you could play it. So we played eight, and I can't remember the score, three, two, four, three. I scored with 30 seconds left to win the game. Bobby Smith behind the net comes out, passes to me. Greg Mellon's in the net. I score. So we beat Gretz's team out. Uh, but I think I, I mean, I think I have as good an understanding of Wayne Gretzky's impact on the world of sports than, than just about anyone. Played against him in junior, played against him in the NHL. He joins the Kings. Basically, while well, I was hurt the first year he got here, I missed the whole season, came back and played only 11 games the next year, and then I retired with the injury. But then I went into the broadcast booth. Then they make it to the final in 93. Just all of this to see the growth of hockey, to see the growth of hockey in L.A. I mean, I, during that year that I missed, I went to the front office and I said, can I work for you guys in community relations? We had our formal travel guy, former travel guy's name is Ron Munez, he uh, passed away. Uh, but he handled the travel, but he also did some community stuff. Now, before Gretz, no one was knocking down the door to have Kings show up anywhere. When Gretz comes, all of a sudden, everyone wants the Kings to be part of something. So I went up into the office and I worked in community relations from that year that I missed. And then the following year, I think basically I went into played half of the season, retired. And the following year, I ended up in, in TV. And, but I, I was still co director of community relations when I was doing the TV. And, you know, golf tournaments. And we had a, a fundraiser that still, well, Tip of King, it was called. All of these things didn't exist before Wayne. And when he came, I mean, he turned LA on its upside down. And, Again, now we think of, you know, Anaheim and San Jose and Dallas and Florida and Tampa Bay and Nashville and all of the, you know, all of these cities that probably would not, even, you know, Gretz, he captured, man, he captured, I mean, LA is big, you know, stars all over the place in Hollywood. And Gretz really, really caught everyone's attention here. And he changed, he changed. The reason I would move to TV was it's, directly related to Wayne Gretzky. Because when Wayne came here, the Kings were doing a simulcast, meaning basically we only had 15 games or so on TV, but the signal went, was just one broadcast crew. It went on a radio and TV at the same time. The only thing they had to adjust was intermissions. You'd have a special intermission for TV and a special intermission for radio, but the actual call the game, Bob Miller and Nick Nixon, Bob Miller, Pete Weber in my first year, they called the game and it went out one feed. Well, when Gretz comes, they, you know, the higher ups say, well, you know what? 
two revenue streams are probably better than one. And now that we have Gretz, all of a sudden, all the games are on TV, basically. One of the cable stations was called On TV, which ended up Prime Ticket, which ended up to be Fox and now Valley's. It was basically started on the Lakers and the Kings. And, and without Gretz, I don't think that would have happened. You know, we wouldn't have been an attractive option to put on TV. So they, they split the radio and TV up and they needed someone to be the analyst on TV. And I had just been recently retired and I was the guy. You seem determined to continue, carry on that legacy because aren't you like the president of the LA High School Hockey Association or something along those lines? I was for a while. I, I, I no longer, I mean, when I retired from hockey, director of community relations, started broadcasting, I was working. I mean, I, I would do a lot of games on TV where I would go to the, I mean, I'd get up to work out at six in the morning, go to be in the office at nine, basically pop out for the morning skate just to see what's going on. But I hardly talked. I mean, I back in the office, work till like five o'clock, boom, jump right into the TV production meetings, do the, you know, get home at midnight. And I did that for two or three years and I, it was too much. It was just too much. I was just, you know, so I, I started to back off, but I, I still did a little thing. You know, I'm still on the board of the King's Care Foundation, but I don't, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I don't have a hands-on uh, responsibility like they did in the past. I mean, they'll ask me for my opinion every once in a while, but, uh, and I was the commissioner of the LA Kings High School Hockey League the first year it started. Uh, so I helped get that off the ground, but and a lot of things, again, the, the fundraisers and I mean, when, when Gretz was here, we made a lot of money for charities, a lot of money. I mean, that was the sponsors, boom, here's 50 grand, you know, people's paying, you know, money to go to an event like that or a golf tournament. It was, it was crazy. And, and again, it's, we can talk about all the great players we had and Bernie Nichols and Dave Taylor and Marcel and all this, but when Gretz came, that was Rogi was here for you know, then Luke and Rob and all the, all the retired numbers. And it's, um, Gretz was, he was the difference. How did you like the transition from playing to broadcasting? Difficult because I was abs, I was awful. I was just, just, I, it, I have no problem now saying I think I do a, a decent job, but I swear for the first three years, I didn't even know the score of the game after the game. I was so caught up with the technical and people talking in your ear and you're trying to talk and I'm trying to do an interview and producers talk. I just was really, really lost the technical aspects of it. Um, and then, uh, you know, you just, you just learn on the job feel your way into it. Uh, and then 93, when we went to the cup, that was final. That was, I was just starting to get it then. And then of course it was, you know, back then we did all the games. Nowadays you only do one round and then national TV takes over. But back then we did right through to the final. And that was really fun. And that's when I think I started to become a little bit more comfortable. Uh, but it took me at least three years to, to just figure it out. And I really struggled with, I was embarrassed because I knew how bad it was. You know, I would try to listen to games, you know, and try to learn. And I was just embarrassed by it. And, uh, but I'm so glad that they stuck with me, you know, 
when I see now like a, a you know a rookie starting in broadcasting, even like a referee comes up and he's a rookie ref, and you know he's, he's it's tough. It's they're just learning. And uh, I always think back, well, they stuck with me. I'm gonna I'm gonna take it easy on these rookies because there's a lot to learn. You know, when you bring up that '93 finals run from your perspective i'm wondering jim what's going through your mind and if you what you remember perhaps from the broadcast when the stick measurements happen I felt, I mean, it, I remember saying to, back then you could, you know, they had the dish, the big dishes, and you know, you have the back feed where you could hear the announcers between whistles, between, you know, if you go to break, commercial, you could still hear. So a friend of mine had one of those, and I know he's listening, I said, Rodney, I said, we're not going to win another game. And we hadn't even lost that game yet. We went to overtime. And I just, I just felt the whole, I mean, we're, we beat them 4-1, I think, game one. After coming off seven-game series against Toronto, we were just beat to heck. That was the most physical series I have ever seen in my life. Toronto, McSorley, Wendell Clark. I mean, just big, big boys going at it. So we had to jump two days later into Montreal and play them. We beat them, and we're up late in the game. And they asked for the measurement, tie it up, and win it in overtime. Um, just, you talk about having your heart ripped out of your chest. You know, it was just, we were probably the underdog anyway, even with Gratz. But, you know, it would have been tough to win that series. But just, if, if we could have went up 2 nothing, both on the road, then that's a whole different story. And unfortunately, we... We couldn't pull out game two, and, and we didn't win another game. Obviously, as disappointing as that was, the Stanley Cups, plural, did come. What do they mean to Los Angeles, to hockey in Los Angeles? I think it, well, just coming off of the 93 that we were talking about, forgotten. Once you win... You forget. The bad stuff. And it all becomes worth it. I remember the parade. Because now the pressure is off, right? I mean, we're watching games. We're not doing the games yet because Nationals taken over, but the Kings made a deal with the NHL in 2012 to have Bob and I do a, a DVD of, of, a, of a clinching game. So we, we, we did game five in New Jersey. We lost. So it didn't, wasn't released. 
we did game six and we won. So they released a DVD for charity that was sold to Kings fans and that. But to, to, to go to the parade a couple days later, because now you're not worried about winning or you've already won and you see the, uh, the generations of Kings fans, like kids, older kids, teens, parents, grandparents, all watching. What a, what a team. Up 3-0 in every series. Made the playoffs second to last game of the season. But I, I do, I, before that season started, I remember in our pregame, Preseason special we did, I think, on Fox Sports back then. And I, I remember, you know, you're always asked for predictions. And I said, you know what? I don't think the Kings are a favorite by any means. But I said, if I will not be surprised if they win the Stanley Cup. Because they, they had the best roster I had ever seen with the LA Kings. Best roster. And then, you know, they, they trade for Jeff Carter at the trade deadline. And that was basically the final piece. But um, that was a team, I remember that they never cared who got the credit. They just won. So, we, you know, that was the, the feeling and the parade to, to be able to celebrate. I mean, during the games, I'm a basket pace, so I'm, you know, so nervous watching. But to, to finally win it, and then I, I remember after that game, uh, Dustin Brown handed me the Stanley Cup. I say, my wife and I, Susie, it changed our lives. It just, all of the bad stuff went away in one cup. And then we had a chance to do it again three years later. That is so special, Jim, to think of Dustin Brown passing the cup to you. And obviously you never got the chance to win that as a player, but there you were still with this organization that drafted you back in 1980. And there you were. And Dustin is, you know, as we speak in a couple of days, he will have his number retired in a statue outside of crypto.com arena. Uh, I mean, representing all of those years as captain, the first American to win two Stanley Cups as a captain. Uh, and, you know, so that's coming. He played every single game with the LA Kings. Uh, that's just, it's hard to win. Oh, it is hard. I mean, 14, first three series, I think the toughest road the Stanley Cup ever. I mean, just crazy the teams that the Kings had to beat in 2014. Down 0-3 in the first series against San Jose. Then Anaheim, who were like on top of the league. Then Chicago. I mean, to win, winning all three of those series in game seven on the road. That was the series, Chicago, LA, Western final. 
best series I've ever seen. I think the Kings came back twice in that series after trailing 2-0 in the game. I think Chicago came back, won a game after trailing 2-0 in the game. And that was a different year because like the first 2012, the Kings, again, they, they out-defended you to win the Cup. In 2014, in that Chicago, they outscored the Blackhawks. Great games, back and forth, high skill. I mean, I, it was incredible what a series that was. And then we, five games against the Rangers, but um, that was, and again, and then in the, the year in between, we ended up going to the Western final again against Chicago. Chicago wins the cup. Those three years, you're talking about on top of the league. And to do that, these guys, I'll, you talked about being committed. It's hard to win. And they won twice and they came close another time. You know, I find myself thinking as you're relating these stories that I'm thinking back on your father and Coniston and Inco and the blue collar. And here, here we are talking about your 40 plus year career in the game of hockey. Like it's not a bad way to work, eke out a living there, Jim. No, it's, it's well, very, very fortunate. Very fortunate. Um, my mom played catch with me as much as my dad did. She was a lefty. We only had right-handed gloves. So she would catch, take the glove off, throw with her left hand. Uh, my oldest, my only sister, outstanding athlete. My older brother, Mike, played in the International Hockey League back then. Uh, my uh, other brother, great athlete. My younger brother, all great athletes. My mom and dad were... That's what they, they, they raised us to always have sports in our life. Um, Steve, my older brother, Kevin, my younger brother, Debbie, my sister, Mike, my older, uh, older brother, uh, my mom and dad. That, uh, what, a, what a sports family. We didn't have, we didn't have much, but I remember my, my dad bought an eight, eight millimeter, the old projector uh, where you had reels and my mom would take photos of us at track meets and ball games and hockey games. And uh, that was, that was, you know, they, they really, they surrounded us with sports and it was, my whole family were great athletes. How tough was it for you? Because you were still young. I think you were 29 years old. And I'm thinking back on, you talked about, injuring that knee, going off the ice in Kingston, the fans cheering, that's how much those fans didn't like you as a member of the Ottawa 67s. But it was that knee, really, that was the Achilles heel, if you'll pardon the pun in different body parts. It must have been tough, Jim, to hang him up at the age you had to hang him up. Yeah, it was, it was. But I was, I remember playing in one of those 11 games. You had like 20, I had 20 games to play to decide whether I the player more, you could take like a uh, an injury type of clause and retiring with an injury, you could get some uh, supplemental income. So you had 20 games. To, so I only played 11. I, I just remember in Winnipeg one night, I think it was Sean Cronin, big tough defenseman. I remember I had him in the corner. He was coming right at me. So when the defenseman's coming directly at you, you got him, right? Because He's got to get an angle on you. And he what he just wasn't. He was, and he was a big tough guy, but he wasn't the fastest skater. 
And I remember trying to make a move and bang, he hit me. And I went, what the? So I, I lost my quickness. And with me, I was only, I was very small, 5'8". And uh, when I lost that quickness, I think I played a couple more games after that. And as the season went along, I was trying, you know, you're, you're hoping to get better. It was only getting worse. My knees were kind of basically eroding inside. And yeah, it was tough. It was tough. It was, I remember like two years after I retired, I finally hit me. I finally said, you know what? I'm, I was like 31 years old. And I said, I, I, I'm 31 years old and I've already done what I've always wanted to do. And it's over. Like, what do you do now? You know, I was working in the office at the time and just starting broadcasting. So I did jump right into it. So that was, but it was tough. It really was tough. And, you know, you, I talked to Dustin Brown the other day and, you know, man, what a career he had and how hard he played and tough. And he says, he feels great. And he said, you know what? He went out on his own terms. And that's, he said, that makes, he feels great. And, you know, for, for me, it was the other way. It was, you just, you, I was just starting to get it when I ended up getting hurt. I thought I was really becoming a better team player, a better all around player, understanding the game a lot more. And, uh, you know, unfortunately couldn't go on. What was it that helped you kind of start to get it or who? I know you had Pat Quinn for a little bit. You had some great veterans like Marcel Dion and others, but you know, is that, is that where it came from? Pat Quinn was important for me because I was a small, skilled player. And Pat, you know, was a big, strong defenseman when he played a tough guy. And he still respected me. You know, I thought, you know, maybe as a coach, you know, coming from how he grew up and, but he knew that you needed different types of players to have on a team. You know, you can't have all tough guys. You can't have all skilled guys. And I, he really showed me respect and I, I'll never forget that. I remember Roger Nielsen coming and he took over for a year and very technical and really, really started to think about the game when Roger was the coach. Uh, really interesting the way he approached things and again, the way he taught uh, things of that sort. But ended up playing, I think I ended up playing for nine coaches in 10 years, which was <laughs> a bad problem for the Kings. We just didn't have any stability there. Um, but um, yeah, those two guys, Mike Murphy as a player and then as an assistant coach. And he was really, you know, I basically came in and took Mike's job. He was the older right winger and I was the new guy on the block. And he would stay out with me after practice and help me stuff. Throw pucks around the board. You got to learn how to take that puck around the board. You know, he'd throw a hundred pucks after practice. And you just learn. And he, I was taking his job and he still, that's the type of team guy he was. He, he wanted to help the team get better. And, like I said, when I, when I ended up retired, that's when I was really start. I think I was really starting to get, you know, what it takes for a team to win. And, and you know, you just kind of learn, you, you learn each year, you try to get yourself better. You learn, okay, now it's starting to work with this group. Oh, this, and you'll learn a little bit more. And then, uh, yeah, you just have to go by the side. You know, just before I let you go, I'm thinking back on, 
talking about Dustin Brown. You mentioned the Jeff Carter trade, that first Kings run. Mike Richards would have been, of course, part of that team. And it it, may, it takes me back, Jim, because as a guy that's been covering the Ontario Hockey League for so long, we love watching the players that come up through our league into the pros. And I, I think L.A. that year had one of the strongest, if not the largest contingent of former OHLers in the league. That old league that you developed in is still doing pretty well, I guess, eh? <laughs> It is. It's. I mean, we all we, we all joke now, and the college kids are coming up, but then the Westerners and the Quebec guys, we always joke and you know what the best league is. We we certainly believe the Ontario League was the best league, and uh, the players that have come up, yeah, it was. And I think that uh, Dave Taylor, who helped put that team together as a general manager, Dean Lombardi takes over for the couple of years. Uh, they, I think they knew what the best league was, and that's that's where they went to get their player. This has been uh, an absolute treat. Thank you so much. Oh, I didn't even ask about, real quick, wine. How did you develop the taste? And you, you got into winemaking. Yeah, um, I think it started mostly after I retired. Uh, there's a local restaurant here in Hermosa Beach called The Bottle Inn, an Italian restaurant. I actually, we'll be going to dinner there tonight um, as we speak. Uh, just started to go there and you know, like most hockey players like to have a beer. They, you know, let's try this. The wait staff there was so helped, you know, try this here and have a little. And I really didn't like it. The, the old Chianti's, very acidic and not a lot of fruit. And uh, didn't, and then one, I, I remember it's Rodolfo, the, the server brings me a glass of white wine from France. It was actually a blend from the Rhone region, which is like grapes, you probably Marsan, Roussan, Viognier, a blend together. And I had a taste and I went, wow, this is pretty good. So then as I kept going to the restaurant, they would bring me more different kinds. And I just, so then I said, you know what, how the heck do they make this stuff? So I started to take classes very simple, you know, tasting classes, 101, wine 101, geography. And then when my wife and I would travel, we would end up going to wine regions here in Sonoma and Napa, but also around the world, Italy and France and mostly Spain, Portugal, we've been up. So uh, we would always take seminars. Then we came back and I still, we were playing a charity golf tournament. And a friend of mine says to me, what would you like to do? And I said, well, you know what? I really like to make wine. And he said, well, why aren't you? I said, you know what? It's, I did a little research. It, was, it is still the number one failure rate in California, even more so than restaurants. There's over 5,000 wine labels in California alone. So it's very difficult. So I said, I don't want to lose money. I don't want to invest it. He said, here's the money. So he, he gave it. He said, this is not a loan. This is a gift. So we started Patinet Cellars. Patinet is the French, it's the past participle of skate, so to have skated. So Patinet Cellars, uh, we, our branding and our labeling, our label is basically, a, a, it has the texture of a puck. It's not rubber, but it's silicon because you can't have rubber because rubber smells and you can't have something with an odor on a wine bottle because that would take away from the the appreciation you're going to get from the wine. Anyway, so and then we have uh, our packaging. Our, our We sell basically in three bottle packs. The pack is a skate box. 
basically, if you remember opening up a skate box, the way they fold it in, uh, we have skate lines on the ice in our packaging. Uh, but uh, our first vintage was 2011, uh, mostly Pinot Noir, highly acclaimed by the critics. They love it. They rate it high all the time. Just uh, released a month ago, our first Chardonnay, first white wine. And then later on this year, we'll release uh, a Cabernet. Well, Mike Smith is our winemaker. He's not the goalie. <laughs> um, and there's a Hall of Fame jockey also, Mike Smith. Uh, but uh, he does a phenomenal job for us. Uh, so, Patsonay Sellers, PatsonaySellers.com. We, we really take a lot of pride in what we do, and uh, it's, it's a great product. I visited the website, and I can tell that you do. Uh, it's just terrific. It's, it's a hell of a long way from Coniston, Jim. That is. That is. <laughs> this has been just terrific. Thank you so much for taking the time and, and sharing these memories. It's been a great chat. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Hi, I'm Emily Roger, and I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.